chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of, of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, uh, by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds, they asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you with minds and hearts ready and receptive uh, to receive whatever the Spirit wills. We ask that as we listen, as we apply, that the Holy Spirit would have his, his way and do a mighty work in our hearts individually and collectively as a church. And pray that you would uproot the things in our life that are holding us back from the fullness of of the presence of God and his kingdom. We ask that your will would be done here in Santa Barbara, here at Reality Santa Barbara, as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So classic Luke, the author, just kind of bombarding us right out the gate with a lot of detail and a lot of historical, uh, meticulous writings and detail. And this is just a style. Remember when we first started this series, or for those of you that, that weren't here at that time, uh, Luke is a doctor. He's practically a lawyer. He really loves, and a historian in his own right, 
His, his intention was to write down in meticulous detail all the things that he had heard about Jesus so that people can be assured of, his, of the story of Jesus. He, he really cares about the, the gritty details and all of the, the things that come along with it. But it's, it's, not just because, it's not because Luke is long-winded. It's because he thinks we need to hear what he's about to say. And so he includes so much stuff in the Gospel of Luke that we don't get in, in John or Matthew or especially Mark. And one of them is a list of particular names. Now he's, he's giving us these names for two reasons. One is to give us the date. Uh, Tiberius, uh, emperor, uh, the emperor of Rome at this time. Uh, if you remember from last week, it was Augustus when, when Jesus was a preteen. And we know from, from history books that Augustus died at about 14 or 15 A.D. and Tiberius took over. Luke tells us this is the 15th year of, uh, of Tiberius' reign, which means it's about 28 or 29 A.D. What's that tell you about Jesus? He's almost 30. He's not 12 anymore. He's certainly not a baby. He's a full-grown adult male. It is on, Luke is trying to tell you and me. We've achieved adult Messiah. It's about to get a little wild. But he's not just giving us a historical timestamp. He's giving us names for a reason. He wants us to feel what people would have felt at that time knowing some of the names that were just rattled off by Luke. And I'll just give you kind of a little spoiler alert. These are some pretty bad people. So pretty bad dudes. Um, I mentioned last week that Augustus was known for upheaval. He kind of came in to the Roman Empire and kind of turned everything upside down. Well, Tiberius would be known for his brutality. Not a great leader to live under. Certainly uh, not one that would bring you much comfort. Under Tiberius were little leaders in different regions and different areas, tetrarchs and uh, governors. So Pontius Pilate was another one uh, that was mentioned. You might recognize him because he turns up later uh, under a foreboding light. He's that governor that hands over Jesus, an innocent man, to be tortured and executed because he cares too much about what the crowds think about him. And Pilate would later, history would tell us that Rome would actually pull him from his post uh, and ask him to give an account for how horribly he led the Jewish people. Uh, he led with an iron fist, and he cared more about uh, his own life than the people that he was leading. Horrible leader. Uh, Herod and the Herod family, they were, they were puppet kings of Rome. They were called to lead specifically in the area of the Jewish people in the north. Uh, to care for the, a specific group of people that loved the, uh, the God of Abraham. But they didn't love God, uh, and it's doubtful if they really loved the Jewish people either. The Herods were known for heavy taxation and using that money, diverting it to build their own mansions and theaters and all sorts of stuff. They, they used the people to kind of prop up their own power. And finally, Luke brings up uh, two religious leaders, Annas and Caiaphas, uh, Interesting thing is there's only one high priest that actually functions at, at one time. There's not two. And Luke says this. He says, the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. Uh, it's almost as though he's pointing out with like a subtle hint that there's some, some political corruption going on. That Annas was the retired high priest. Caiaphas was currently in charge. And these are two, arguably two of the most powerful Jewish people in Israel at that time. 
But Luke seems to be alluding to the fact that even though Annas has retired, his presence and influence can still be felt. And as Luke is rattling off names, I think he wants us thousands of years later to feel what the people at that time would have felt. This is not a good time to live. This is a time of greed and political and religious corruption and injustice and suffering. And in the midst of all of that, God's people, the people of all people who would have hope because they're being led by God in the midst of all of this have not heard the voice of God for centuries. The last Old Testament prophet to be on the scene was Malachi 400 years prior. So in the midst of all of this turmoil and brutality and injustice and greed and corruption, God has been silent. And it's in the middle of that, their own wilderness, that we find this guy, John, in a literal wilderness. And I love how Luke poses this little sentence in verse three, uh, at the end of verse two. In the middle of all of these names, the turmoil associated with them, the word of God came in the wilderness. I love this probably because uh, perhaps some of you can resonate with me. I've experienced some of my own wilderness experiences. Have you? A spiritual drought, economic turmoil, relational brokenness, Broken marriage, broken families, singleness, schooling, work, uh, just life in general, and the turmoil that normal humans feel all the time, and sometimes more than anybody else feels, as we've experienced in the past couple months. And we sometimes encounter, we might be be able to say as Santa Barbans, life is good here. But there are those seasons in our life where, if we were honest, we would also say, gosh, life is bad right now. Maybe you're in that place right now. You feel like you're in a wilderness. And I think if we were to take this at face value, we'd have to say, don't sell those wilderness seasons short. Don't consider them a loss or a failure. Because it's often in the valleys of your life that the Word of God speaks. It's often in the wilderness, as we see here, literally and metaphorically, that the Word of God comes alive. Maybe you're in a wilderness right now, and God is just getting ready to speak a word to you. All you need to do is listen. Sometimes it's those wildernesses that force us to listen, because we have nowhere else to turn to. Don't sell that wilderness short in your life. It's often in those places of drought that God's word is the most satiating. And, you know, it's no wonder that the crowds are starting to flock around John. Because, I don't know if you notice this, but John the Baptist doesn't seem like a very nice guy. Seems like a kind of a punk, right? And people are just flocking around him. And look at the way that he treats them when they rush to, like they're seeing, they're in the middle of this spiritual drought. They're like, oh, John the Baptist, like he's got a word for us. And they're just crowding around him. And you hear what he says to them when he sees the crowds? They're coming to receive from him. You brood of vipers. I mean, can you imagine? Anywhere else in the world, like it's, If you had something to offer Santa Barbara that would blow their minds, like, I don't know, you had a food truck and you were offering, like, bacon-wrapped kale chips that solved, you know, heart disease, all right? 
and you opened up this business on a Friday in the funk zone and people heard about you and you know all the restaurant lark was empty because all of their customers were lining up down Yananali for your food truck. You open the door and you're like, you Bruno Vipers, who warned you of the kale chips to come? Yeah, you slam your door. And John treats the crowds this way. They're coming for, for water for their souls and he's just right off the bat like, yeah. And they stay. This kind of tells you how hungry people are. But they don't mind just getting <laughs> slapped around by the last of the Old Testament prophets. They are thirsty. They are deeply in need of a word from God, of a work of God. Sometimes wilderness experiences will make you desperate enough. But you'll go through anything to hear the voice of the Lord. They're here, and he immediately begins to baptize people in water, and he calls it a baptism of repentance, meaning repentance is, comes from that, that word meaning to change your mind, and it literally means you were, you were going in one direction, and you switched directions. Uh, you know, if you're driving down 101 North and you do a U-turn and you drive 101 South, you just repented. Uh, if you decided on this career early in your life and you, you know, wanted to do something completely different, you repented. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. It means that you have uh, changed your mind on something that you learned was a better course of action. Well, it's the same with our, with our spiritual lives. For people who are walking in this direction and all of a sudden they saw God. They're like, I'm going towards him. That is repentance. And for the Christian, for the follower of God, we live a life that isn't marked by a single repentance, but a life of repentance. Constantly, as I like to put it, a re recalibrating, recalibrating towards God. We're walking towards God. We've got him in our view. And then we get distracted. Oh, I gotta repent. And then we're walking towards God. We're walking towards God. Oh, we get distracted by something. Or we fall onto the wayside. It's okay, repent. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. It is the recalibration of the human soul towards the God that our souls were made for. And John is preaching that. But, but the, the interesting thing here is who he's preaching it to. As he's baptizing people, I wonder if some of those people that he was baptizing were a little jarred. Because uh, in, for for. The Jewish nation, baptism wasn't for them. It was for Gentiles. The Gentiles were people that weren't born uh, with Israelite blood. Uh, Israelites, they were kind of, they were grandfathered into the covenant community. If you were born uh, of certain tribes, you were in. You were on the inside. And anybody else, a barbarian, a Scythian, a Greek, a Roman, uh, you know, whoever, if you wanted to be a part of God's people, you had to go through some certain uh, religious rites in order to be included. One of those was an immersion. Baptism literally means immersion. And that was meant for people on the outside in order for them to be included on the inside. And John takes that and he speaks to people on the inside and he says, you have need to repent. You have need of being changed. And so he affirms this deep desire in their hearts, perhaps in our hearts today. There's something needs to change in this life. Broken things need to be fixed. Suffering needs to be dealt with. Evil needs to be eradicated. 
Relationships need to be mended. There's something wrong with the world, and it needs to be made right. John the Baptist comes in on the scene and says, you proto-vipers, you're right. And the change has to start with you. First Peter chapter 4 actually would say that, that this type of change, this judgment, begins in the household of God. John was saying it long before Peter. This happens with you, with us, with me. God is going to change things and make all things new. He wants to start with you and me. He wants to start with his people. This is a wake-up call for God's people to take seriously God's purpose for the world around us and with us. And at this, you know, and John is using strong language. He's like, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, you know. The Israel is the tree to carry out the metaphor. Like, hey, if you don't get right with God, you know, you're going to be cut off. He's like using some strong language, calling a brood of vipers. And they're, they're just so hungry, these people. So hungry that they just respond like, wow, yeah. What do we do? Now, when I read off John's answer to what do we do, did any of you feel like it was a little anticlimactic? He's just built up this incredible display of God's movement towards people. He's saying God is about to change everything. He's speaking about God's kingdom. Things are broken. Empires are crushing people. There's injustice in the land. People are suffering. They're sick. They're lame. They're in the darkness. Something needs to change. It starts with you And you need to change. You need to get right and repent from the way you were going and walk towards God. And they're like, yes, 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 yes. What do we do? And John's answer is basically, give your jacket to the person next to you. Share your clothes. Talks to the tax collectors. Tax collectors who uh, were Jewish people working for the Roman machine. And they were in charge of kind of gathering taxes from their own people, but they would often, this was common with tax collectors, they wouldn't just gather what they were supposed to gather, they would kind of skim, they would add a little bit to the top, which they would line their pockets with. And that that little bit on the top was exorbitant, taking advantage of their own people. And so Paul, uh, excuse me, John would say to the tax collectors, and you guys stop doing that. Just take what you need. Take what is right. Soldiers, stop abusing people. Stop beating them up. Like, this is, this is the solution. This is John's advice right now. God's kingdom is coming. He's about to right all that has been made wrong, and we are the ones who need to be changed first. What do we do? Share your jacket. Stop being mean. Don't be a terrible person. Like, really? Really? That doesn't sound quite as revolutionary as I was expecting. (laughs) I was expecting something a little bit more, you know, animated and involved and intense. But what John's doing right now, he's giving giving what an Old Testament prophet normally gave, the law. And he's not even giving the full weight of the law. He's giving the bare minimum right here. Stop being terrible. Don't steal from your countrymen. If you have a lot of clothes in your walk-in closet and your neighbor is freezing in the winter, maybe give him a jacket. I don't know. Like, this is what John is saying. This is far from revolutionary, but it's right. The law was right. John is saying, hey, you can't, like, 
You can't even think about what God is about to do if you're not even serious about the bare minimums. This is good what John was saying. He's saying if we really want God to move, but we're not even taking seriously the bare minimum of what he says, like where are we? But, and so he, he tells them basic things that are, should be common to all humanity. Don't be mean. Don't be a terrible human being. Share your clothes. Feed other people. Don't steal. It says this from verse 10 through 14. Now, the problem with that is even though it's good, and the law is good, it doesn't go quite as far as what human beings need. It wasn't meant to. That's not the tool that it was created for. Uh, Brianna and I always... Uh, laugh with one another because we have this, you know, we have this giant toolbox and whenever something breaks, uh, the, the, the way we approach tools is very different. Uh, she will just grab the heaviest thing available to her and just start wailing. And I'll be like, no, that's a finish hammer. You know, finish hammer, like it's meant to, it's meant to do a certain thing for a certain time. And I'll be spending like hours looking for the precise tool and she'll get the job done like with a you know, with a, a, a pan or a rolling pin by the time I arrive on the scene to save the day. Uh, but certain tools are meant for certain things. The law is a tool. It was meant for cert- certain things in God's plan. It wasn't meant to save. It wasn't meant to give you fulfillment. It wasn't meant to give you joy. It wasn't meant even to change or transform you. It was meant to point you in a certain direction. The problem with the law, or really for, for us, when we think about rule keeping and laws and being good Christians and all of that stuff that arises, is that it doesn't quite go as far as we need. It's not revolutionary. So if you're feeling, wow, that was kind of anticlimactic uh, advice from John, you're right, because that's all he had to offer the hungry crowds. I just finished this book, a fantastic uh, fiction novel by uh, the author Celeste Ng called Little uh, Little Fires Everywhere. And it's basically about two mothers who have different ways of viewing life. One of them is Elena Richardson, and Elena Richardson is quintessential rule keeper. She moves to the uh, suburbs, suburbs that were built on rule keeping, just precise, meticulous rules. She builds her lice, life, uh, lice. She builds her life on rules and rule keeping, and she is meticulously governed by observing the rules. Her her whole uh, her whole paradigm is that it, the suffering and angst and despair and pain in the world can be solved if we could just get more efficient at living life. And efficiency comes through regulations, and regulations happen when we observe the rules. And so her life is filled with rules because that is what she believes is going to make her most happy. And then she runs into another mother by the name of Mia who moves into the town, who is spontaneous. And Mia drives her nuts. Mia also makes her question the rules in her own life and ends up turning the entire town on its head. And Elena Richardson is left at the end of the story wondering, why is she so happy? She's not like me. She's not a crazy observer of the rules. Why is she, does she seem so satisfied? 
The, the Bible tells us that the problem with the law is that it was never meant to empower you to experience the God kind of life. The commandments of God, the rules, the Ten Commandments, all of those things, the do's and the do nots, are not intended, they're not the right tool to give you a, the desire that you need, to give you the power, to give you the sustaining action, to give you joy, to give you fulfillment. It's not that it's faulty, it's just that's the wrong tool. It was never meant to do that. The law was meant merely to point you in the direction where that joy and fulfillment and heavenly ambition and power is supposed to come from. That's what the Apostle Paul would say in Galatians. He said in Galatians 3, if a law had been given that could impart life, you'd bet yourself that righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But it didn't. That's not the law's function. Then he goes on to say, the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. And other translations say the law was our teacher. It was like the guardrails. It can't change you. It can't affect your heart. It can't make you a better person. It can only tell you the right way to go and the wrong way that you're currently going. It is a schoolmaster. It is there pointing in your direction. You have failed to achieve the standard of God's holiness. It's at this point that we should feel a little disappointed at John's advice, even though it's good advice. That's what you're telling me to do? Give someone my jacket? Be a nice person? I've been trying to do that. And then right before the crowds leave, he drops another bomb. After he gives them John's advice, he now gives John's gospel. After giving them good advice, he now gives the gospel. The gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It's not advice of what you and I should do better to fix our lives or to get in well with God. It is good news of what has already been done on your behalf and mine. It's not the good advice of how to pry open that door in order to jump through to change your life. It is the good news of how the door has been blown wide open by another person. It is not good advice of how to climb the ladder into heaven. It is the good news of how heaven has descended upon you. John goes on to explain the good news in three words that light this text on fire. After people are wondering, are you the Christ? He goes on to say, no, I'm just baptizing you with water for repentance. I'm just baptizing, remember, repentance, I was going this way, I'm going that way. We could call it the baptism of good intentions. I baptize you with good intentions. But someone is coming. The best three words I've heard all morning, someone is coming. And he's not going to baptize you with good intentions. He's going to baptize you with transformation. Specifically, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with power. He's not going to do what so many people think that Jesus did with the law, make it easier. I remember years ago hearing uh, when this type of language was popular, uh, this kind of contrasting between Jesus and religion. As though Jesus is like the anti-religion. He's the anti-rule guy. 
the old generation, they were all about the rules and law and obedience, but Jesus is about, you know, freedom and doing whatever you want. Well, I love Jesus, but I, I hate religion. Or Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion, and it's that, it's that deep-set belief that, that rules are the problem. The rules are not the problem. The heart of human beings that the rules cannot change is the problem. And Jesus never changed those rules. He never changed the commands of God. In fact, when he came in on the scene, he said, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the biggest body of Jesus' own words and teachings, you actually get this strange sense or feeling that he's actually intensifying what the Old Testament was saying. I'm almost like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, hold on. I couldn't do what the Old Testament was already saying. And John is addressing the crowds with that, seems to address them with that type of empathy. Here's the bare minimum. Jesus actually would come in on the scene with greater demands than the law requires. More intense visions of what the kingdom of God is like. He didn't come to make those challenges easier. He came to give the full weight of what it meant to be in the society of God. He came to take what the law was pointing at and open the door wide open to show us this is what it means to be in God's family. It is intense. Where the law said, hey, don't murder people that you hate, you know? Don't be a terrible person. Jesus came in and said, love your enemy. Don't just not murder people, love them. Have you ever tried to love an enemy? I know we're all you know, a lot of us are Christians in here and we don't like to admit that we have enemies because we love everybody, but just between you and me, think of that one person. You know who it is. And try to imagine yourself, you know, if we were to put flesh upon what it means to love somebody, to will and be for the best in, to, uh, in their life. To will the best in that person's life. Can you honestly say to yourself, on my best day, I'm always propelling and empowering my sworn enemies. <laughs> if I were to be honest, I look at some of those things that Jesus said and I'm like, that is sheer impossibility. Where the law said, hey, here's some regulations for when your property gets stolen and how you can get it back. Jesus came in and said, hey, if someone takes a shirt off your back, give them the shirt in your closet. What? Are you kidding me? Where the, old, where the law said, hey, don't swear by God's temple because that's sacred, okay? Jesus came in and said, don't swear at all. Your integrity should be so deep, profound, and powerful that people will believe you no matter what you say. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. What? The law said, here's some parameters to curtail the evil in your heart because your heart is evil. Jesus said, I want to change your heart. The law came in to guide people from completely destroying and eradicating each other in society because of the wickedness of their own character and the deficiency of their own character. Jesus said, I want to make your character like the character that I have. But it's more challenging and more demanding. 
But here's another element of the good news. Someone is coming. Jesus came not only with greater, a greater panoramic picture of what the kingdom of God is like, but he also came giving people the desire and the ability to live fully in that kind of life. To look at things like the Sermon on the Mount and maybe for the first time say, I actually want that. And not only I actually want that, but I have the power to live that way. To shape new habits in my life. To see glimpses of the kingdom in my life and relationships and in society around me. This might actually be possible right now, at least a glimpse of it. And he does it. As John says, not by baptizing people, merely with repentance. That's a starting point, changing your mind, having the intent to follow Jesus, but transforming them on the inside, baptizing them in the Spirit and with fire. Uh, You know what that means, to baptize in the Holy Spirit? Baptize means literally to immerse someone. So John is saying there's someone is coming who will immerse you in the Spirit of the living God. Think about that. You will be immersed. This is what Jesus would tell his his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, immersing them in the life, character, and name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Immersion. This is nuts. This is a revolution. It's no longer rules and parameters. It's transformation at the deepest level of the heart. And this baptism in the Spirit really has its anchor in passages in the Old Testament like Ezekiel chapter 36. I think I I wrote up there uh, chapter 32, uh, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel says this, and this is actually God speaking. He says, there's coming a time when I will give you a new heart. Hear that? I'm not going to give you more rules. I'm going to give you a new heart. Now, he's not talking about like a literal heart transplant, like the heart that pumps blood and oxygen. He's talking about how the Hebrews understood that metaphorical language of the heart, meaning the the command center of who you are, your will, your intent, saying, I'm going to give you a new will and new desires. And he says, I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. There it is. And move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Do you see what's happening? This is what the prophets were foretelling. There's coming a time when someone is coming, and they will not add to the list of rules that you've been trying to accomplish, set up for yourself, fail miserably, and feel dejected, uh, defeated, depleted, and broken. This guy is coming, and he's going to start at the very deepest level of you, and he's going to change that part of you. Some of you are still trying to baptize your good works and good intentions, and you're tired. You're wondering... Is this the Christian life? Do better, try harder, say the right thing, don't mess up, don't sin. 
And you're looking for the joy, and you're like, where was it? I thought Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you'll find uh, rest for your weary souls. Where is that? Could it be because you have spent your entire Christian life baptizing good works with good intentions, when what God wants to do is baptize your heart in spiritual transformation? Maybe some of what we need to do today is to allow the Holy Spirit to replace our duty with delight. What John seems to be saying is this is the best I've got. Share your jacket. Don't be a terrible person. But someone is coming. Someone is coming who's going to change everything, and he's the true revolution because he's going to change broken people's hurting hearts. And he's going to show us the spectacular panoramic view and nature of what God has intended for all of humanity. And he's going to give us little glimpses of it right here. But for that to happen, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to open up our eyes and empower us to step into his will. And so that someone, he came. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead to forgive us of our sins, all the ways that we have failed miserably to be righteous, forgives us as an act of grace. But he doesn't just stop there. That's the bare minimum. Forgiveness is the bare minimum. He wants newness of life for you. For those of you, to circle back around to my original question, any of you feel today defeated, depleted, deflated, tired, burnt out, that could be from a number of reasons, some of which we've discussed here in this very building, but one of them certainly has to be, it may be, and we should all consider, have you ever experienced the baptism or the infilling of the Holy Spirit in your life? If you've never experienced that, maybe, maybe you're a Christian, or maybe you don't even know if you're a Christian. Maybe you're like, I think I am, like, ah. I don't know, is there a Fitbit for this kind of thing? I'm just, I think I'm in a church, right? Yeah. Maybe you're really asking that. Like, how do you even, I think, I, all I know is that I'm intrigued by this Jesus guy. What's next? The Bible seems to suggest with power and authority that part of following Jesus, and look at where we've been starting at the beginning. Part of it is like examining what he says and being compelled by that, and just making that conscientious desire to follow him. Good intentions. I intend to follow Jesus. But what John is also saying here, the gospel writer Luke is also saying here, is that there must come a point in your life where the Holy Spirit himself invades your heart and changes you from the ground up at a fundamental level. This is beyond good intentions and good works. This is transformation. And it is not possible to live in the flow of God's kingdom apart from the power of his spirit. Thank God in Christ Jesus that we do not have to live alone. I was 25 years old, about 11 or 12 years ago, when I walked into a building in Carpinteria for the first time and sat in worship, having been around Christians and Christianity and churches my whole life, but not understanding, not getting it, not caring 
being a hypocrite for most of my life. And this big, buff, bald Mexican named Pastor G walked up to me. And he was also with a bunch of other buff dudes. It was scary for a second. And he laid hands on me, on my head, right there. And during worship, he prayed for God to come upon me. I don't remember the details of what he prayed. I don't remember what Britt taught. I don't remember the songs we were singing. I don't remember anything about that day except for this. My life was significantly and forever changed from that point on. And I have never, ever considered looking back. Life has been more challenging. It's been more difficult. It's come with a lot of weight. But I will never trade what I have right now in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in Christ and what I had before that. Something was completely changed. You know how I know? It wasn't because I felt this chill going up my neck or because the angels were singing. It was because something changed inside. My desires were changed. All of a sudden, I found myself wanting something different in my life. And I knew at that moment, whoa. God is rearranging the furniture of my heart. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to ask uh, James and TJ to come out as we transition to worship through singing and communion and prayer. I want you to ask at this point, is there's a lot of, there's a number of people in here from different backgrounds, different stages in your spirituality, but I think all of us should be able to ask right now, have I experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Whatever vernacular you want to use, semantics aside, it doesn't matter. Have we experienced the life-changing power of the Spirit of God in our lives? Jesus says it's important. And no matter what you're doing, you don't have to be a missionary to the unreached people. Whether you're a mom taking care of kids, or you're single taking care of your own life and career, or you're an entrepreneur starting a business, or uh, you're wondering what to do with your life, or you're working on a relationship, or you're in school, you're doing all of that, I'm guessing, as a follower of Jesus. And Jesus wants to be intimately involved in all of those areas of your life. And it is not possible. It is not possible to engage your life with the fullness of God's kingdom and his power apart from his Holy Spirit. But praise God, you don't have to. So let's ask together. Because I think Santa Barbara City needs something a little bit more than the status quo. I think Santa Barbara, I think we need a little bit more than just your age-old, try-harder-than-you-have-been questions and answers. We need the power of God's spirit, amen? Let's ask together in worship, God, Give our church an outpouring of your Holy Spirit today. Don't let us leave this theater today unchanged by your Spirit. And maybe individually all around this room, you might be asking the same question. I don't think I've ever had an infilling of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe I, I, I did a long time ago, but I need another one. Let's just ask. Because here's the beauty of asking God. He once told us this story. Jesus did, and I'll end with this. If our dads, you know, if we ask our dads for a loaf of bread, they're not going to give us a rock. You know, most of them in general aren't that cruel. And if our dads, if our fathers being evil, 
still know how to give their kids good gifts, how, how much more will our Heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit when we ask? You hear that? God is just waiting, waiting to pour himself out upon you and us. Maybe the only thing he's waiting for is for you and I to ask for more. Let's ask together. Heavenly Father, answer our prayers in accordance with your wonderful word and will and change us at the fundamental level so that every eye can see and every ear can hear that someone is coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.